You know, we don't like to be in a hurry. We just, we're, we're sort of against it principally, I think, by and large. You know, people don't wake up, you know, say, I'm going to wake up 15 minutes later this morning just so that way I can make sure that I'm in a giant rush. Now, this year they're saying that there's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood about 17 million people that will do shopping on Christmas Eve. They're saying this is somewhere in the neighborhood about 20% of all Americans. And some of those, that will be the first time they've been shopping. And, and now why do we put it off? It's because we don't want to be in a hurry. You can't tell me when to go buy my Christmas presents. I'll buy them when I'm ready. I might not be ready till December 24th, thank you very much. And there's some of us with, with poorer attitudes than others that decide we're going to wait even longer, as long as we can. Not that long ago, Jenny and I were staying at a hotel. It was the morning, having coffee, watching the news, and the fire alarm went off. Now, there was two schools of thought that were operating in that room. Mine said, some hoodlum pulled the fire alarm, we're just going to stay here. My wife was of the idea that there might, in fact, be a fire. That's why the fire alarm's going off. We should probably get out. We went with her plan. So we got up, we packed up, we, we went out. I was in no hurry. And sure enough, guess what? There, there was a fire. It was a small one, mind you. It was in the kitchen. They put it out. We didn't really have to go anywhere. But there was, in fact, a fire. Why is it that we resist against doing things quickly? You know, we come to Christmas and, you know, we're dreaming of a white Christmas. Why? Because you don't have to go anywhere. You can stay where you are. We like that. But, but if you look at Christmas in Scripture, it's not a lot of pause. There's not a lot of pause. There's not a lot of places to take a good, deep breath inside of the text. Jesus is born, and if you've been around a woman that's getting ready to have a baby, you know there is a sense of urgency about it. It's maybe not a, you know, a high-speed car chase to the hospital the way the movie would portray, but there's not like, honey, do you think you could wait maybe another day? Do you think we could give this six hours? Or listen, you know, I was wanting to watch this show. There's just 15 minutes left. Do you think we could, you know... Wait on that, we'll do this, and then maybe we'll come over to that. There's, no, there's none of that. You know, when it's time, it's time. You know, it's, it's that time. Hey, it's arrived. It's time. Let's do this thing. And that's sort of how that works. So you've got the birth happens. There's not a pause there. All of a sudden, you've got these shepherds show up. And they're talking about the angels, and then they go. And then, you know, the next morning, the innkeeper gave them the, the, the stable. But, man, you're going to have to find yourself a place to live, Mary and Joseph. And so we know they do. They end up somewhere. We uh, suspect uh, that the, uh, the wise men come and visit. And then what happens as soon as the wise men leave? God comes to Joseph in a dream, and he says, Hey, listen, it's time to go. Pack it up. And you've got to leave, like, right now. You've got to leave right now. There's an urgency with Christmas that we sort of miss. Uh, we've been looking these last few weeks at John the Baptist and how he is the one who has come to sort of prepare the way to receive Christ when he shows up. Uh, we talk about how our mission is really the same. We live in the same time like John the Baptist did. John the Baptist lived before the return of Christ. We live before the return of Christ. It is our job to prepare people to receive Jesus when he comes. Uh, last week, Jared talked about how we need to become a little bit less and Christ needs to become a little bit more. And this morning, I want to look at sort of the urgency 
of Christmas here in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and following, we read this. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, I know that probably a lot of you, you gloss over those, those verses. And if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to be with us in Luke chapter 3. That's where we're going to be all morning long. But, but we see there's something very specific about this. Luke records all of these names so that you would know this one thing, that there was a point in time, there was a place in history where John's ministry began. John seized a moment, for John that moment was now, and he acted on it, and he went out and he started to proclaim the good news that Jesus was coming, that Messiah was going to show up. Now, I know that when we think about time and we go, man, you know, now is probably the time to go and share God's love, but it's not, it's not real convenient. You know, we look here at Luke chapter 3 and we go, you know, it would have been a better time during the reign of Emperor Tiberius when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. I mean, these are Bible names. These are biblical people. This is a whole biblical group of people. This would clearly be a better time to tell them about Jesus because, I mean, Jesus was there. Now it's harder. Let me tell you, this was a difficult time for John as well. Emperor Tiberius was known for a few things. One was throwing the people, the Jewish people, out of Rome a few times because he just didn't like them. And, and this, we suspect, was actually right after the first time he had expelled Jewish people from Rome. He said, man, there's all these Jewish people in Rome. I don't like these Jewish people. You got to go. And so if there was ever a time to start gathering large crowds of Jewish people talking about a new king, Messiah, that was going to come, this was probably one of the worst times to do that. King Herod was temperamental, to say the least. And we know how King Herod and John's relationship ends up. If there was a good time to proclaim that, that there was a, a, an accounting of sin, and there was a time to get right with God... This was a bad time. And yet John sees that moment. Because if you've thought about it, there's never really a good time to talk to people about Jesus. You know, it's Christmas right now. And we're like, you know, I'd like to invite my neighbor to church. But it's the Christmas season. Hello. It's Christmas, Christmas season. We'll, we'll talk about the etymology of that word maybe another day. But... But it's Christmas, we say, you know, and everybody's busy, and they got the things going on, and they're going here, and they're going there. Why don't we wait till January? And so January comes, and we're like, wow, January is good, but people are getting back in the swing. You know, they've been, they've been at Christmas, and now they're out of Christmas, and now they're here, and they got kids are getting into school. They're just getting in the groove, you know. I don't want to upset their groove by inviting them to church, and so this is not a good time. We come to February, and we got snow days, and we got all those weird federal holidays, and, and all those things show up, and it's Valentine's Day, and, you know, we do a big thing for groundhogs and all this type of stuff, and we're like, you know, this isn't a good time either, and then March shows up, and it's April, and it's spring break, and people are traveling, and man, that's not a good time to invite them either, and then May, school's wrapping up, you know, there's graduations, people are getting ready to leave for summer vacation, and then it's June and July, and that's just too hot, nobody's thinking Christ-like thoughts, 
when it's hot and it's humid and they're sweating and we're like, man, we don't want to do this. And then August comes and school's back in session and people getting back in the groove and we're like, nah, it's not probably the best time. And then, you know, it's October and then what's that? That's fall break. And then you come back to November and you're in the middle of the holiday season all over again. If you really were to like mark it out on the calendar and say, when is a good time to talk to somebody about Jesus. You've got about a three-day window. It's like a Tuesday to Thursday, that third week of September. And that's it. Really, after that, it's, I mean, you're done. You know, that's, there's no more after that. And we sort of operate with this mentality, and we're like, you know, well, I'm going to wait for the right moment. You know, if John was going to wait for the right moment, he'd have had to wait for Tiberius to die, and Herod to die, and all of them to die. And as a matter of fact, he'd have been waiting until he died. John sees the moment that he had because that was the moment that he had. I, I, if I've blown your mind here, this, this carries over real well. It, the same thing's true of us. We've got to seize the time that we have because it's the only time that we've got. So what, what is the time to share God's love? Well, now is the time to go and share God's love. And some of you go, well, I'm not quite sure how to do that. Well, a, a great place to start would be to introduce them to, to the bride of Christ. We call that the church, to, to the body of Christ, the church. And, and, and we here at the church men think, well, how can we make that easier for you to do? And in January, we want you to know that we're going to start a great series that, that I think everybody's going to want to be a part of. It's going to be called Committed Family. January 18th, we're going to launch this. It's going to be a series. We're going to talk about friendship. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about uh, parenting. Uh, we've got a class that's going to talk about grandparenting. We've got all sorts of stuff. I mean, everybody's going to fit in, in this somewhere. And if you talk to anybody, you know, do you want to have better relationships? Odds are the answer is yes. You talk to people that are married, you say, do you want to have a better marriage? I've yet to meet the person that's like, no, we're good. It doesn't need to be any better. It can't be better than this. I've yet to meet that person. Yeah, we want to have a better marriage. Yeah, we, we want to connect with our kids in a deeper way. Yeah, we want them to, to be equipped for success. And so January 18th is going to be a great series for you to come and to invite people to church uh, uh, to hear about those kinds of things. All right, so let's go on. So John seizes the moment that he has. That's really the message there, verse 1 and 2. Let's pick up verse 3 and see what we see here. It, it says, He, this is John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked will be made straight, the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Right here we see that, that John understands that now is the time to prepare the way for God to come. John likes this passage in Isaiah. That, that's how he understands his ministry. John, are you the Messiah? No, I'm not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not the Elijah to come. Well, then, John, who are you? You know, Sam, the voice of the one in the wilderness crying out. And for the Jewish people, they understood what that meant. This was the herald that was going to come before Messiah. And if you read through this just casually, we see what's taking place in verse 4, 5, and 6. It's a giant construction project. Okay, it's, it's like if you've driven the interstate, this is what they're doing. They're, they're blasting out leveling mountains. They're taking all the mountains and they're pushing them into the valleys so that way you've got a straight, level road. All the crooked paths in the mountain, they're, they're straightening those things out so that way you've got an easy path. Now, now, we get that from the description, but then the next question is this. Who's going to use this highway? Well, most people will assume, well, John's making this road 
so that people can get to God. But if you look at it in its context, it's actually wrong. John is making this road so God can get to his people. John's building a highway, not so that the people can sort of muster it up inside of themselves and take a hike and get over to find God. No, he is making the highway so that God can get to his people. And he understood himself as part of that highway, building a road from God to people. And I like that image, and I think that that's probably a good image for us. You too can be a part of a highway that's being built from God to your neighbors and from God to your coworkers and from God to your family. Every time we have an act of love and we do something in the name of Jesus or we show somebody Christ-like compassion or Christ-like truth, what we're doing is we're building a road between God to people. Now, sometimes we'll use the imagery, we're planting seeds. You know, we're planting these seeds and God's going to grow. Well, that's great. But John takes up what I like a little more masculine metaphor here. He says, I'm building a road. I'm building a highway. I'm, I'm lowering the mountains. Every time you talk to somebody about the doubt they face, some sort of obstacle between them and God, what are you doing? You're leveling that mountain. You, you're making it lower so that way it's easier for God to get to those people. Every time you walk with somebody through a, a, a valley of depression or a valley of doubt and you're there with them showing them love and showing them compassion, you, you're raising that up and, and you're making it easier for God to get to people. And, and so I would challenge you to seize this moment right now because now is the time to prepare the way for God to come. And let me tell you, you're going to do it even better than John did. Because I, I, if John showed up at your office or your workplace wearing the camel skin with you know, grasshopper legs sticking out between his front teeth, unshaven and unkempt, John would not be permitted to stay at your place of business long. They will listen to you better than they listen to John. And let me tell you, you don't ever know what, what kind of small act will, will mean something to somebody? Craig Grishel, uh, he's, he's a Christian writer. He's, he ministers at a church. and he, he said right after he got real serious about reaching people for Jesus Christ, he uh, started to, to wear little um, cross pins on his lapel, little cross pins. He said, you know, I'd get them for a dozen at the Christian bookstore, you know, a whole, whole box of them. And, and he said, I'd wear them, and people would comment on it. And he said, and I would always give it to them. I'd say, well, here, why don't you have it? If you like it or you, you like it, he, he said, I would just give it to them, sort of as a reminder of, 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 of who Jesus is and what he'd done. And, and he said, I would just give these out. If somebody would comment on it, I'd just give it to them. He said, one day I was in a 7-Eleven. He said, I was getting a drink there. I'm going to check out. And the girl behind the counter says, hey, that's a nice pen. And he says, I want you to have it. And she said, no, I can't, I can't take that. That's, that's too nice. You, you know, I, you, that's, that's too nice of you. I couldn't do it. And he said, I want you to have it. He said, I really want you to have this. And, and after a few minutes, she, she says, all right, well, thank you very much. And, and he, she takes it, and he didn't think anything about it. Well, a few years later, she winds up in his church, and he's there in the lobby after service and shaking people's hands and saying, hey, it's good to see you. And this woman comes to him, and she says, you don't remember me. She said, but, but when you gave me that cross pin, and she opens up her coin purse, and she's got it sitting in her purse because that's how much it meant to her. She said, when you gave that to me, she said, it reminded me that, that God still loved me and that I was worthy of something. She said, and, and that really changed my life. And, and you don't ever know what, what kind of act of compassion is going to do for somebody. What was he doing? He was building a road so that God could get to this hurting woman. And you have that same opportunity if you will seize that moment. Now, John is seizing this moment all over the place here, and people are coming out to, to, to flock to him. And I know it's really hard for us it, 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 to, to think about why is it that John the Baptist was so popular? And even in some respects, why was it that Jesus was so popular? 
Well, I just want to take us all back to this time period. We've got, we've got no smartphones. We've got no internet. We've got no TV. We've got no movie. We don't even have books, friends. There's no books. There's no magazine. You've got dirt, and you've got sticks, and you've got other, I mean, a few other things. But, I mean, that's it. Dirt and sticks is really the highlight, you know, and that's what you're dealing with here. You've got people playing in the dirt with sticks living a rudimentary, basic kind of life. And then you get this traveling preacher, John the Baptist, who comes around and he gets real excited and he starts talking about things. And I'll tell you, that's the biggest show that's ever going to come to town. And so when John the Baptist shows up, I mean, it's not like, you know, like today. You know, you see these things all over. Big tent revival. Yeah, I'm not going to go to that. You know, you see this sign back in in that day. There's a tent revival. John's speaking. Everybody's going to come out and see John. And, And people are starting to flock to him. And as they do, John is not a a feel-good preacher. John isn't trying to make these people feel good. He's trying to help them get right with God. Let's look at his message here in verse 7. John came to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. And here's what he says. He doesn't say, welcome, brothers and sisters. He says, you brood of vipers. In other words, you bunch of snakes. You bunch of snakes. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance, and don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees, and every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Amen. Wow. Woo. That's a message, isn't it? But John's message is real clear. He says, listen, now is the time to trust in God alone. There were a lot of people that were coming out to see John because it was a good show. And John said, listen, you, you, you come here and that's fine. He said, but don't think that you're right with God because of who your daddy is. Just because your daddy is, is descended from Abraham, don't think that that makes you right with God because God has no grandchildren. God only has children. And if you don't receive him, he is not going to receive you. You're going to have to get right with God. Now, today, I, I, I see less people that trust in their lineage, and, and they trust the other things that they've got. You know, they look around at their life, they look around at their accomplishments, maybe the stuff they've got, maybe the people they married, maybe the family they've got, and they go, you know what? I've done all right for myself. I've done all right for myself. And John calls people like that and people like in his day to a different kind of fruit. He says, don't look around at your life and go, man, I've done all right for myself. Do something a little different. Look here in verse 10. 14 he says and the crowd said to him what then should we do in reply he said whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none and whoever has food must do likewise even tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked him teacher what should we do he said to them collect no more than the amount prescribed for you soldiers also asked him and and we what should we do he said to them don't extort money from anyone by threat or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages john calls them to bear this thing that's called the fruit worthy of repentance and a fruit worthy of repentance is real simple it trusts in god alone it says i'm not going to trust in in amassing of two coats or or a whole bunch of food or any of these kinds of things or or the job that i've got where i can extort money i'm going to trust in god alone there's another thing the fruit uh, worthy of repentance does it puts other people first and it says you know what i'm going to value other people more than myself and more than my things fruit worthy of repentance is content and it puts its trust wholeheartedly in god And as John is preaching this and telling them both the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ, he lets them know about Jesus, verse 15 through 17. Let's look at that. 
As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Right here, John is saying that Jesus is going to do two kinds of baptisms. One, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The other, the baptism of fire. Now, you go to some churches and they'll say, man, we want to be baptized with fire. You do not want to be baptized with fire. That's, that's an either-or option here. John isn't saying you get baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's you're baptized with the Holy Spirit or fire, okay? Holy Spirit is good. You get filled with the Holy Spirit. You come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't choose that, then you get the baptism of fire. That's tied with the, he has got the winnowing fork and he's throwing the chaff into the fire. You don't want that option, okay? You don't want that. So don't say, I want to be baptized with fire. You don't want to be baptized with fire. You want to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we know that that comes through, through the water baptism we see there in Acts chapter 2. And, and these things come and, and, and they come together. And, and John says, listen, there isn't a third choice. You, you get baptized with the Spirit or you get baptized with fire. But you can't not choose. It's one or the other. And as we come to Christmas and we start to think about sweet little baby Jesus, and we like sweet little baby Jesus, and, and there's movies about people praying sweet little baby Jesus, and we like all sweet little baby Jesus. We get that. Let me tell you, sweet little baby Jesus grows up. Sweet little G baby Jesus becomes a man. And sweet little baby Jesus ascends to the Father in full glory. The same glory that he had before he came. And sweet little baby Jesus, at some point in time, is going to come back in judgment. And sweet little baby Jesus, at some point, is going to baptize people with fire. Because they did not choose him. And so as we think about, man, what is, what is the choice? What are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to seize this moment right now. Just like John did. And we're supposed to tell people, hey, listen. You need Jesus. You need a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we can't ignore this. You know, we can't ignore this alarm, we can't ignore this notice, and we can't put it off until some other time, because there is no better time than the time we have. You know, it's kind of funny to think about ignoring a fire alarm. Some of you might have been at that Western football game where the uh, fire alarm took over the PA system and it came, kept going on. It was like, there's been an emergency reported to the you know, office and you should evacuate the building. And, I mean, it's kind of unnerving, you know. It comes on the PA, and they keep saying it over and over, and you got the flashing lights and the alarm and the strobe, and this is being said. And here I'm watching the football game, and Jenny's sitting next to me, and i got the kids, and I'm like, maybe we should go. But they kept playing the football game. And the coach kept calling plays. And the refs kept officiating. And nobody left. We ignored the alarm. Now, this is fine. It was fine. Nothing happened. Nobody got hurt. You know, it was some hoodlum pulled some alarm somewhere. But you go over to Russia not that long ago. There was a nursing home fire broke out. And people thought it was, you know, false alarm. And they ignored it. And 62 people died. They had plenty of time to get out. They had plenty of time to do something. But they didn't. Because they ignored it. They waited. Friends, we can't wait. 
John didn't wait. We can't wait. We live in this time right before the return of Jesus Christ. And now is the time because we're not promised tomorrow. You come down to verse 19 of Luke chapter 3. It says, Herod the ruler who had been rebuked by him, that's John, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting John up in prison. John is eventually beheaded. If you don't know the story, that's what happens. He dies. He doesn't get out of prison. He dies there. His time was cut short because of preaching the gospel. Now, thankfully, we live in a country and in a time when that's not likely to happen, and I'm thankful for that. But we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what the rest of the day holds. Former NFL coach Steve Mariucci said this. He says, I don't ever wear a watch because I always know it's now. And now is when you should do it. And it's true. It's true. This morning, church, I want us to just look at that text. I want us to think about the ministry of John the Baptist. I want us to think about the return of Jesus. And I want us to remember that right now there's a warning, there's an alarm that has gone off. It's been sounded by the text, it's been sounded by the Holy Spirit, and it says, go out and tell people about Jesus Christ. Invite them to receive his love. Don't ignore that. This floored me. A 2008 Harris Interactive Post, sponsored by CarMD, found that 10% of the 2,000 adults they called were driving a car whose check engine light was on. I don't even want to ask how many of you, by a show of hands, your check of engine light is on. I didn't know that this, these people existed, but apparently 50% of those people, their car was showing the sign of an impending breakdown, and the light had been on for over three months. Three months. Check engine. I'll get to it eventually. Here, listen to the, the excuses these people were saying. Well, you know, it seems to be running fine. You know, I turn up the radio, I don't hear it. They didn't say that. They said, you know, I just don't have the time to fix it. Well, you don't have the time for your car to be in the shop for a week either. You know, and I thought about that. I thought, you know, when that check engine light comes on in my car, I'm pretty militant. I'm like, all right, we're going to go check the engine. Why? Because experience has taught me that if you ignore said check engine light and you wait, it gets more expensive the longer you wait, like exponentially. Oh, I didn't know I couldn't drive my car without oil. You cannot. <laughs> Pay attention to these things. I've never done that. But it's true. And yet, and yet, I will tell you that I'm one of the first to sort of silence those promptings of the Spirit. When God says, hey, go talk to that person. Go help her out. Go over there or just say it. I'm like, not right now. There's a better time. John teaches us that now is the time. It's the best time we've got because it's the only time we've got. And that now is the time because we're not promised tomorrow. And that now is the time because God desperately wants to build a highway to connect with the people you know. So please, let's seize this Christmas season, Christ's season, okay? And let's seize it for him. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the beautiful gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the baby Jesus, Lord, but we thank you that he didn't stay a baby. We thank you that he grew, that he became a man, that he felt all the things that we feel, that he suffered the way that we suffered, and that, Lord, he has come to set us free. God, this morning we pray desperately that you would ignite in us a heart of compassion, a sense of urgency that says now is the time to reach people for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.